0: Welcome to the Rapid Response Podcast, brought to you by the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, SHEA, promoting the prevention of healthcare-associated infections and antibiotic resistance, and seeking to advance the field of healthcare epidemiology and antibiotic stewardship. Discussion on the podcast does not reflect SHEA's perspective, but facilitates communication of multiple perspectives and experiences as we go through this challenging time together. Today's discussion will focus on recognizing healthcare epidemiologists and promoting infection prevention during COVID-19 and beyond. Our speaker today is Dr. Julie Trevetti, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. Thank you for joining us today. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Jennifer Hanrahan to get us started with brief news and guidance update for the week.
1: As of March 31, 2021, there have been 127,619,612 confirmed cases of COVID-19, including 2,791,953 deaths reported to the World Health Organization. As of March 29, 2021, a total of 520 million vaccine doses have been administered, including almost 148 million doses in the United States. The World Health Organization published results of the China part of the World Health Organization convened global study of the origins of SARS-CoV-2. In May 2020, the World Health Assembly requested the Director General of the World Health Organization to continue to work closely with the World Organization for Animal Health, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and Countries, as part of the One Health approach to identify the zoonotic source of the virus and the route of introduction to the human population, including the possible role of intermediate hosts. The aim is to prevent both reinfection with the virus in animals and humans and the establishment of new zoonotic reservoirs, thereby reducing further risks of the emergence and transmission of zoonotic diseases. The World Health Organization selected an international multidisciplinary team of experts to work closely with a multidisciplinary team of Chinese experts in the design, support, and conduct of these studies and to conduct a follow-up visit to review progress and agree upon a series of further studies. The joint international team comprised 17 Chinese and 17 international experts from other countries. Following initial online meetings, a joint study was conducted over a 28-day period from January to February 2021 in the city of Wuhan, People's Republic of China. The team's assessment of the likelihood of different pathways for introduction of the virus were as follows. Direct zoonotic spillover is considered to be possible to likely pathway. Introduction through an intermediate host is considered to be a likely to very likely pathway introduction through cold food chain products is considered a possible pathway, and introduction through a laboratory incident was considered to be an extremely unlikely pathway. A report was published in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology about clinical illness with viable SARS-CoV-2 virus presenting 72 days after infection In an immunocompromised patient. The authors report a case of late symptom onset of COVID 19 infection 72 days after initial diagnosis in an immunocompromised 53 year old man. SARS CoV 2 was cultured from his sputum sample at this time, and genomic sequencing suggested reinfection was unlikely. After receipt of convalescent plasma, SARS CoV 2 became undetectable by PCR 111 days after diagnosis, although SARS CoV 2 antibodies remained not detectable. The authors state that this case posed difficult public health management issues in a low-prevalence COVID-19 setting as the person required extended home isolation given his prolonged SARS-CoV-2 detection. A report in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report on Interim Estimates of Vaccine Effectiveness of Messenger RNA Vaccines in Preventing SARS-CoV-2 Infection Among Healthcare Personnel, First Responders, and Other Essential and Frontline Workers in Eight U.S. Locations from December 2020 to March 2021 was published. In this study, prospective cohorts of 3,950 healthcare personnel, first responders, and other essential and frontline workers completed weekly SARS-CoV-2 testing for 13 consecutive weeks. Under real-world conditions, messenger RNA vaccine effectiveness of full immunization was 90% against SARS-CoV-2 infections regardless of symptom status, and vaccine effectiveness of partial immunization was 80%. This study demonstrates that authorized messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines are effective for preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection in real-world conditions. COVID-19 vaccination is recommended for all eligible persons. And finally, an article published in Biophysical Journal titled Hydrating the Respiratory Tract, An Alternative Explanation Why Masks Lower Severity of COVID-19, examines why cloth face masks may help reduce severity with COVID-19. The authors state that use of cloth face masks has been linked with decrease in severity of illness, which is surprising since they don't work very well to filter out viral particles. They tested four types of face masks, an N95 respirator, a three-ply disposable surgical mask, a two-ply cotton polyester mask, and a heavy cotton mask. Volunteers breathed into a sealed steel box, and scientists measured the humidity level inside the box. The authors state that the seasonality of respiratory viruses has been linked, among other factors, to low outdoor absolute humidity and low indoor relative humidity, which increase evaporation of water in the mucosal lining of the respiratory tract. They demonstrate that normal breathing results in an absorption-desorption cycle inside phase mass, in which supersaturated air is absorbed by the facemac fibers during expiration, followed by evaporation during inspiration of dry environmental air. For double-layered cotton masks, which have considerable heat capacity, the temperature of inspired air rises above room temperature, and the effective increase in relative humidity can exceed 100%. They propose that the recently reported disease-attenuating effect of generic face masks is dominated by the strong humidity increase of inspired air. This elevated humidity promotes mucociliary clearance of pathogens from the lungs both before and after an infection of the upper respiratory tract has occurred this potential therapeutic use of masks should be
0: studied further. And that's the news for this week. Thank you, Dr. Hanrahan. I now want to move on to discussion with our speaker. So thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at UT Southwestern Medical Center?
2: Sure. Thank you for the invitation to be able to be here. It's always a great opportunity to be able to explain a little bit more of our field to the general community. I'm currently the Medical Director of Infection Prevention for the Medical Center, the health system overall. This was a transition actually that was made in April of 2020 in the midst of the pandemic, as we began to see the interface of infection prevention and a lot of the outbreak preparedness come between the ambulatory and the inpatient services. When I started at UT Southwestern in 2017, it was as medical director of infection prevention for the university hospitals and our hospital-based clinics. So really, we've seen a lot of change happening in the past year or two as far as kind of merging our ambulatory and hospital-based infection prevention efforts. My responsibilities typically involve your routine infection prevention types of activities, such as monitoring and doing surveillance for healthcare-associated infections, surgical site infections, water management programs, as well as your routine outbreak preparedness and high-consequence infectious diseases. So really, with the pandemic, it was basically an expansion and extension of our responsibilities.
0: So it's interesting that, you know, as healthcare epidemiologists and as medical directors of infection prevention, we're always preparing for the possibility of a pandemic, we're always doing different types of drills, and we're also doing a lot of day-to-day work to prevent infections for people that come in. But many have never heard of epidemiology, and, you know, certainly I think the pandemic brought more attention to our field. Why do you think it's a pandemic to do this, and why do you think people don't know what epidemiology is?
2: I think we've largely been a hospital based field, as well as typically a behind the scenes or an after the event type of a field. So we do a lot of work to help identify healthcare associated infections and surgical site infections. So our previous work used to focus more on the infection control part of it. And really what the pandemic brought to light was that we needed to focus more on the prevention part of it. So we needed to have more activities at the forefront and at the beginning to help individuals recognize how this disease might manifest and what to do if they were to encounter a patient and really not only what to do afterwards. So it, I think it shifted the focus to not only settings outside of the hospital so that you know long term care facilities certainly came to the forefront as well as the general community public health departments and you know this impacted all aspects of life outside of your acute care hospital. So not only the location but then I think you know the timing of our responsibilities and interventions shifted to before an event occurred and not just after an event occurred.
0: So do you think that the healthcare field will see more people specializing as healthcare epidemiologists because of the pandemic? And what do you think we can do to encourage or support this?
2: I certainly think so. I think, you know, there's the term going around, the Fauci effect on the increase and in the interest of, you know, medical students and trainees overall in medicine, as well as in hopefully infectious diseases and healthcare epidemiology. We certainly have been seeing an interest and an increased interest. And even during the pandemic last year, we hired an additional two infection preventionists to join our team. So there's certainly a, a growing number of individuals in healthcare, I think, that are becoming more aware of this field and are wanting to become interested. I think really what we need to be doing is extending the education and bringing healthcare epidemiology into the medical school and into the training of our house staff. This is not something that we should only be introducing when somebody is an infectious disease fellow, because as we've seen with this pandemic, it involves all levels of education, as well as the different allied health fields within medicine as well. So You know, this is where we had to work with our physical therapists and our respiratory therapists. And we might not traditionally be thinking about those settings when we're introducing the topics of healthcare epidemiology outside of, you know, the orientation that these folks might get when they join an institution.
0: I completely agree. I think, you know, even within infectious disease fellowships, there are several that don't present the opportunity to even participate in infection prevention or epidemiology. And and I think you're right. I think it has to start sooner. But I am encouraged. I think this is good news for us looking forward that there'll be a, a whole body of individuals who are really excited about it, and I hope we can continue to support them. And if you think back about the experience that you had and how you prepared Do you think that you felt prepared for this pandemic? Do you feel like you'd be prepared for the next one? That's a really great question, actually, right? Because I think that it's something that we always prepare for in theory.
2: And then it's, you know, when, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? You only realize how well you're prepared for it when you actually have something like this occur. And, and I would have to say that I'm really grateful for the experiences that I've had throughout my years. So when I did my infectious disease fellowship at Boston University, really our infection prevention experience was limited to the Shea Hospital Epi and sort of like, you know, the, the Shea course that we have on infection control and antibiotic stewardship that I, I helped to work on the module last year. And, you know, you took certain number of hours and you watched videos and modules, but then trying to understand as a fellow how... Some somebody worked through a surgical site infection or determining something was a caudi just felt very much of an abstract topic. It's just so different from the clinical medicine that we practice. So it's a little bit, you know, branching out to look at infection prevention in a different way. And then, you know, we would carry the antibiotic stewardship pager and review those with our stewardship director. So really that was kind of the extent of that. And then, you know, after I finished my fellowship, I joined Johns Hopkins. And there, of course, we have certainly many world-renowned experts in infection prevention and antibiotic stewardship. It was there that I actually had met Dr. Pearl and, you know, she certainly has had experience with the first SARS pandemic back in 2002, as well as with MERS. I had the opportunity to go with her to Saudi Arabia during the kind of the second wave of the MERS outbreak in 2015 and really get a sense of what it was like to help, you know, develop an infection prevention training program for, you know, 9,000 staff of all levels at the hospital in Saudi Arabia, as well as really educating folks on you know, how to evaluate a possible patient with MERS. And, you know, we think about these little types of experiences along the way. And I really think that that was quite helpful. And then of course at UT Southwestern, having Dr. Pearl as my division chief and my immediate boss, you know, you have this resource right there at your fingertips. Many of us could be so lucky, you know. And then, you know, I remember in 2019, we had done our fall sustainability exercise And the topic of that one was pandemic flu. And it was interesting because we did an after-action review and many of the areas of concern that came up were, what do you do when you have significant numbers of employees out of the workforce? What do you do when schools are closed and children are sick and these employees have to take care of their children? How do you distribute Tamiflu on a mass level? Like, you know, what would be our institutional setup for that? So, so many of these exact questions that, came to light during the pandemic last year were things that we had talked about in one of these preparedness drills in 2019. So I'd have to say that, you know, could any of us have fully predicted the full extent of this? No, because there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of other organizations that we have to work with on the public health level, federal, state, et cetera, that can influence the trajectory that we take and even the pace. And then of course, when everyone is demanding your PPE and the supply chain, takes a little bit of a, takes not even a little bit of a hit, but a significant hit that can certainly, you know, impact how we end up, you know, rolling. But I think that all of these other experiences certainly did help with the preparedness so that when the pandemic was beginning to really unfold and the impact was starting to be seen at our institution, I think that we were a little bit better prepared maybe than other institutions.
0: You know, I think it's interesting that you point to the pandemic flu. Maybe in some ways it was serendipitous that the you know a centenary of the Spanish flu was right around that time, and I think a lot of us were focusing on it, and, and I know that in speaking to other epidemiologists, it, it seems to be that the focus in a lot of hospitals was around that, so perhaps in some ways that's a little bit of a, a silver lining that we were kind of looking at, it. although I think our focus was slightly different. We are focused on on flu, but you can certainly extrapolate from that. So Dr. Trivedi, as the result of all the work that an incredible individual like yourself has done, do you think that we are going to be better prepared the next time around when we see the next pandemic, whatever it may be? I certainly hope so. (laughs) I mean, I think that, you know, speaking for our own
2: institution UT Southwestern has also played a pivotal role with the assessment of potential Ebola patients as well so any patient that's coming in through DFW airport who is thought to possibly have one of these high consequences infectious diseases you know we have an agreement with the CDC where they would come to our institution for evaluation and so we have a special pathogens team that has been training for that that has done many drills and evaluated individuals that you know all turned out to be you know malarious But we have many persons here who do have a lot of that experience. I think to speak, you know, beyond that, as a state, as a country, I certainly think that we are better prepared. You know, the knowledge is certainly out there as far as what types of public health measures need to be taken, depending, of course, on the type of an outbreak or pandemic that we see, as well as, you know, the other parts of the infrastructure that are really important. So even if you have, you know, vaccine development, manufacturing, distribution, you know, personal protective equipment. We saw a little bit of that with Ebola. I think the impact on the U.S. with Ebola was less, obviously, than the impact on the U.S. with COVID-19. So I'm hoping that we are better positioned and better prepared if we were to see something like this again in the future. My one concern, though, is that at what point you know, in the future, when another event occurs, do we, you know, kind of call it as the start? And I would hope that we don't become trigger happy, you know, where, you know, we start to see some cases and then say, oh, no, we've got something that's going to come to the US and then people start to become desensitized to the potential of another pandemic. But in a way, it's kind of better to have folks who are prepared and able to act on something with the smallest amount of information than to be unprepared.
0: Yes that's a, that's a very difficult balance to strike because we can't sort of do this on our own and we really do need you know other individuals in the society to take this seriously and and to help us to deal with it and I think you know one example of really how far this has reached is that many individuals within healthcare epidemiology, been asked to assist within other places, in workplaces, in schools, other educational and community settings. Have you been asked to provide guidance in some of these areas? I know it's typically outside of the scope of what we usually do, working in a hospital or in in an ambulatory practice setting, but have you been asked to assist in these areas? Yes, I have. And, you know,
2: many of my colleagues as well, simply because, you know, one person can only have so much reach. So yes, we have, we've been involved with some of our local airlines. We've helped with the local symphony as well, involvement with the school districts in and around this area and really to help kind of develop guidelines and screening protocols. And when is it safe to kind of resume, you know, activities in person, what can be done in the meantime to help mitigate the risk of an individual, you know, since many of our public transportation and airline folks are considered essential workers to some degree, you know, part of that critical infrastructure workforce. So how do we make sure that we continue to operate those and keep those industries safe while trying to mitigate risk as well? And then, you know, we have a pretty significant business community around here, business and tech community in this area, and this region, and keeping them apprised of what is going on with COVID-19 has also been a very integral part of my responsibilities and even of several of my colleagues colleagues, you know, with the information coming out so quickly and every day, initially it was like every hour things were changing, but every day, every week, there's new information coming to light, you know, based on what we learned about the virus itself and then treatments and vaccines. We actually hold routine kind of debriefings and briefings with the business community to give them really information from the source. This helps them to make more educated decisions for their own companies, as well as, you know, be aware of the. Activities of UT Southwestern and see ways that they are able to help us. And I think that with these types of briefings, you know, there came a lot of donations for PPE, sometimes monetary donations as well to the institution to help us through some of these difficult times. So, certainly have had collaborations. They have also been instrumental in helping to promote the message about the importance of masking, you know, so working even with the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban, who's played a big role in helping even our healthcare worker morale and donating shoes or food items, et cetera, to our healthcare workers who are working on the front line. So I think that the involvement with the community outside of the hospital has really been very important and very influential for both ways.
0: So with all this extra stuff that is required of us and all the extra time, not just at work, but in helping to, you know, guide all of these other areas of society, whether it's schools or, you know, sports groups or theaters, how do you ensure that you have adequate time for your infection prevention duties and how do you keep from becoming overextended during these crisis periods? I don't know if it's ever possible to have enough time for infection prevention duties, right? Because I think the day that any of us are
2: saying, "Well, we've solved all the Cs and cauties, and we have eliminated all surgical site infections, and my job is done," I, you know, I, I would love to be able to see that day, but I don't know that we will ever truly, really see that day. You know, as long as we're continuing to take care of patients that become more and more complex, you know, every year. So I think that you know, my breakdown, at least of my time here, is supposed to be 80% hospital epidemiology and 20% clinical. My clinical time is actually all inpatient time. So when I'm on service, I don't have any ambulatory outpatient responsibilities. And I think that that works well for me and for my own personality based on the types of things that I'm interested in, even in infectious diseases as a whole. And I think that, you know, there was times when I was on service in January and February of last year that I had to ask a colleague to help me out for a day or two because I needed to deal with either a possible you know, patient coming into the hospital or be on certain calls to help, you know, develop certain protocols and workflows. So it's certainly relying on others. I think the first few months, like many, many others around the country, I worked 20 hour days for about one to two months. And really what it helped to highlight was kind of how under-resourced We were, and really showing how we needed to rely on each other more, not only within our division, but then even within the hospital and our health systems and how to kind of train others and being able to delegate some responsibilities once you were able to identify maybe what the workflow and the process should be for a certain thing. So, you know, realizing that we have colleagues that we need to be able to lean on was very important. And also... There were some things that just were not a priority at that time. You know, there were some things that, you know, moved to the back burner because they had to, and not because they're not important, but they just were not at the top of the list when we were trying to deal with the pandemic. So now what we're seeing though, is that, you know, initially we were maybe that cog in the wheel that without our presence, the, there was nothing that was moving forward. And we were the ones being asked every single question about what to do in every single scenario. And then once we developed our workflows and processes, and more people were familiar with them, and once we began to then have COVID patients, and more people became familiar with the treatment management of these individuals, our direct involvement in having to address many of those questions kind of took a step back. So now I've been able to actually focus a little bit more on collapses, CAUDIs, some surgical side infection, which has been kind of nice. I mean, I love the pandemic stuff, you know, it's always fascinating and interesting and engaging, but it's also nice. to be able to focus on the other things that have not gone away despite there being a pandemic.
0: I completely hear you. I think we almost cried with joy when someone called us about isolation protocols for something that was non-COVID. It was kind of nice to feel like a little bit of the day-to-day work was really kind of starting to take a little bit more of a front seat again. And I think you highlighted an important thing in that, you know, we, we traditionally have not really been fully staffed in, in our areas. And I think that it's important to bring attention to the fact that we do need that staffing. And in doing so, I think we need to figure out how to recruit people into it. So do you have any ideas about things that we can do to bring attention to infection prevention and to healthcare epidemiologists, given how important we were not only through this pandemic, but in general?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, within our own institutions, it's about having relationships with others, being very visible in our working environment. So whether that's by going and doing work rounds and talking to the different nursing units about the challenges that they're having with clapsy, cotty, whatever it might be. So helping build those relationships helps to, I think, foster that sense of what is healthcare epidemiology. And I joke around that, you know, our director of infection prevention, Dora Maria Rocha, she is so well known that if you're at UT Southwestern and you don't know who she is, then you probably have not been there long enough because everyone knows who she is, you know, so she has such a presence and a personality that people want to join our team, you know, and in the past year and a half, we've hired four additional infection preventionists from, you know, public health backgrounds, as well as from nursing backgrounds and recognizing the important contributions that people can make from different backgrounds coming into infection prevention. I think that, you know, this is also in the setting of a hospital expansion that went live in December and January of this year. So adding, you know, another 250 beds to our current hospital in the middle of a pandemic (laughs) was quite also a feat. But, you know, thinking about it from, you know, the medical side as well, I think that It goes back to, you know, talking to high school students. So one of our representatives, Colin Allred, basically has invited another colleague of mine and myself to have these one hour sessions with the STEM scholars. So the science, technology, engineering, math scholars, and, you know, it's a small group of individuals, but we kind of talk about our plan, our trajectory, where we started, from when we were kids and how we got to where we are. And many of us may have gotten here by intention and some ended up getting here along the way of our journey, you know, but helping others who are, you know, in, in elementary school, middle school, high school, see what it is that we do, I think helps them to have a greater insight and perspective about the advantages and benefits of being in this field. So I think that it comes with starting, you know, with education and then also our relationships with those that we work with.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think we need to kind of start earlier. And I wonder if maybe adding some more specific dedicated time to infection prevention and epidemiology during residency, you know, you can take in, uh, an elective time on infectious disease. You can take an elective time in cardiology. It's not often that they have the opportunity to do that as residents within infection prevention or with epidemiology. And I wonder if that also might not be another tack to take. I agree actually, you know, here we have our internal medicine residents
2: have a mandatory ID rotation during their training. And I think that having residents train with infectious diseases, granted, you know, not all the attendings that they rotate with are hospital epidemiologists, but Having an insight into what our field is like and the different specialties we work with throughout the course of our time on service and outside of the hospital really gives insight onto what infectious diseases can be like, that it's not just all about, you know, antibiotics for staph bacteremia, but that there's a whole world of outpatient antimicrobial therapy and many other different aspects of infectious diseases. So, you know, when one of us is on service with the team, you know, when I have let's say a, you know, a system-wide call, I'll let the residents listen into that. So they kind of see what kind of work we do behind the scenes and on an operational and administrative level as well. And the influence that then we have at the institution and helping to determine policies and protocols. So I think it's really been amazing to have the residents with us. They add a lot to the team and we always have an internal candidate who wants to do an infectious diseases fellowship from our institution.
0: Yeah, you know, I always I always enjoy those moments where you have the resident with you or you have the fellow with you and they're, you know, they're helping you kind of work through either an outbreak or just work through an SSI and then they kind of, you know, say, Whoa, I didn't realize this is what you do. And you see that light bulb go on. So it's pretty exciting to see them get excited about it too. And I think it, it is great to have them there because they kind of bring a, a little bit of excitement to it and, and make you feel like, you know, this is a pretty important thing and it's nice when they make that connection. And I think, you know, when I think about the department, at least where I am, there are a lot of nurses in infection prevention. There are a lot of, you know, doctors typically with an infectious disease background that go into it, but we don't have that many from, you know, a public health background in our hospital system. We do actually have a few people with masters in public health who have ventured their way into infection prevention, but it's really not that numerous. Have you thought about how maybe we can better educate those students about our field and prepare them for infection control positions? Yeah, I think that
2: this is, it's really important. You know, I think that we at our institution have folks with an MPH background, the vast majority have a nursing background, but then we also have a couple, including our director with a microbiology background, you know? So I think that many of these individuals transitions to infection prevention when they worked with someone who really impacted them, you know, whether it was a physician who impacted them or whether it was another infection preventionist who really impacted them. But I think it goes back to, you know, bringing this out into the schools and into the education. So my sense is probably that many academic medical centers, especially larger ones that might have a school of public health attached to it, or a school of allied health professions attached to it, probably are going to have more exposure to what infection prevention is Than academic medical centers that don't have, let's say, one of these schools of public health attached to it. So those students in that setting, it's really important, I think, to be able to reach out to those students and you know, whether it's part of their curriculum, because they certainly, you know, they're they're getting training on, let's say, the principles of epidemiology or policy making. So there's certainly many areas in their curriculum that are going to overlap with infection prevention, infection control. And so I really think it's important for us to be able to then network and reach out. to these, you know, allied health professions, schools of public health to see how we can introduce, you know, some or introduce the topic of infection prevention into the curriculum, whether it's a course or a project or having, you know, spending a day with the IP team in the local hospital. I think that that's certainly something that could be helpful. And many smaller hospitals may not have an infectious disease doctor who serves as their healthcare epidemiologist. And there's no real requirement that you have to be an infectious disease doctor. I think it tends to fall into our bucket, but, you know, working in a hospital and working on CLABSI prevention and surgical site infection reduction, you could have a surgeon who runs this, you know, because I think the things that we look at are going to impact you know, all patients and all types of medical surgical wards in the hospital and involving physicians and nurses from all different types of specialties. So I don't think there's really anything that says that you have to be an infectious disease doctor or infectious disease trained to be able to be a healthcare epidemiologist for a hospital.
0: So we've talked about a lot of different things, and I feel like I could spend hours and hours talking to you about, you know, what you do and your thoughts on how to engage people in this and about, you know, all the meaningful work that's happened within the last year and, in, in, you know, moving the country forward through the pandemic. But is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't touched on that you would like to add or, or that you think people should know about infection prevention?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, these are the folks who are helping your hospital or healthcare environment operate safely for your patients, for your employees, trying to keep everyone safe as possible. So it's really important. And, you know, what we do has implications for the, you know, payments that are made to hospitals. It has implications for revenue and reimbursements as well. So if someone is interested in that part of it, that's certainly something that could be helpful. But, you know, one other thing that I really love about infection prevention is Actually, two things. One is that there's always something new. You know, there's always, as we saw with this pandemic, there's always something new on the horizon. So it keeps it fresh. And the second thing is that, you know, we get to work with people in all different departments in the hospital and not just medical or clinical departments, but we work with our facilities folks, our environmental services folks, housekeeping, our supply chain. And, you know, so it's really diverse. You know, I think that one of the things I've really been enjoying here has been involvement with our water management program, you know, learning about HVAC and air handlers and the hospital plumbing supply. These are things that, you know, they don't teach you in medical school, in residency, or even in fellowship. And it's honestly, it's a really nice break and a change from some of just the regular clinical medicine that we do. So I find it quite refreshing and energizing and really still really impactful because what we're doing is affecting and impacting the lives of our patients as well as our employees.
0: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Trivedi, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and experiences. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. This podcast can be accessed on Shea's online education center, Learning CE, under the Rapid Response Program. You will also find resources such as the recorded webinars, healthcare facility outbreak preparedness, and the Shea COVID-19 town halls. Interested in hearing from our expert speakers on COVID-19 and other prevalent healthcare epidemiology topics? Join us virtually April 13th to 16th for Shea Spring 2021. Register now at sheaspring.org. This concludes this episode of the Rapid Response Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.